we're starting a series thinking about encountering God. And um, the one thing I didn't hear when you were talking in your groups about encountering God is um, no one said I, I encounter God on my mat. Because like, the mat is the, in our contemporary culture, the mat is the current sort of sacred place of engagement and worship and introspection and meditation for lots and lots of people. Isn't that right? So um, I was thinking we should all have, well, prayer mats are an ancient tradition, right? No, no, we shouldn't. I can see people shaking their heads. No, no mats in church. I was thinking we could just get rid of the chairs and everyone bring a mat. But um, we're thinking about encountering God and uh, what that looks like. And um, before we, as we started, there were two questions you've got to think about. And the first one, which was raised in your discussion groups, is, well, is there even a God to encounter? Right? And that's, that's a very real question. And just because we're sitting in a building that, and, and with a bunch of other people who are religious, we shouldn't just assume a, a yes to that. And it's okay to think really hard about this and to grapple with it. Um, in fact, I think there's almost... I can't think of a more important question to think about. Can you? Like, so much in life and in death depends on the answer we give to that question. And one of the things I find interesting in our culture is very often people don't give this a lot of serious thought. So you, we have a bunch of ideas that we might have got in when we went to Sunday school for a few years as a kid or in scripture or if you went to a, uh, you know, a religious school in chapel services and Christian development when we were kids. And, and then you sort of park that big question and you just get on with life. Um, and I've always found that interesting because I think, well, what more important question is there to grapple with? So uh, this is what we have to think about. Now, now, I would say, and I suspect the majority of us here would say, well, there is a God, okay? Um, and in fact, that's the answer that pretty much every human being gives. When you, when you, when you push, push us hard enough, when you scratch beneath the surface, there is a sense in all of us, in every culture, and that, that you know, there has to be something more. So, um, you know, there are different reasons for why we think that, but I think, I think that is a question we've got to keep grappling with. And so if we assume there is, then the next question, and I don't know if you're paying attention, but the Bible reading was from Genesis 12. It's the first book of the Bible, and um, it tells us the story of Abraham's encounter with God. And so we're going to look at that and think about that and think about what we can learn about our own encounters with God from this. But the question there is, why look at a text that is three and a half thousand years old? Like, why, why do we go to that text to think about this? Um, why don't we look at other texts? Why go to something ancient? Well, I, I, a few thoughts um, uh, about that. The first thing is this text, the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, this was the text that Jesus used. This was Jesus' Bible, right? And you say, oh, that's great. Why is that important? Well, my working assumption in life is that Jesus is the smartest person who's ever lived, right? So if you take that, like, honestly, his teachings and his insight into the human condition into God have changed the world 
in any, you know, beyond recognition, if you've ever been in a culture, which is very rare these days, that has been untouched by Christianity, you'll see the dramatic difference that Jesus made. Um, and for Jesus, the text he used to understand God was Genesis through to Malachi, the Hebrew scriptures. So, so Jesus says to us, this is where we find out about God. This is where I find out about God. Now, of course, you add a layer on and we think Jesus wasn't just the smartest guy who ever lived. He was actually also God come to make himself encounterable and accessible. So if God himself says, this is the text, this is the story of God's encounter and interaction with humankind, then I think we should take it seriously. The other th reason we decided, I decided it's really important to park ourselves in this text, is Jesus himself is unintelligible without the Hebrew Scriptures. Uh, you see, the Hebrew Scriptures make it very clear to us that Jesus uh, was a Jew. He was a Middle Eastern man who arose in time and space in fulfillment of uh, one and a half thousand years of journey with God, of history, of story, of promise. The great temptation that we fall into with Jesus is we create a Jesus who looks very much like ourselves. We create a Jesus who's a white woke westerner right or maybe he's just a white reactionary conservative westerner pick your political persuasion pick your ethnicity and and we re we reduce or we make jesus that one thing i guarantee you is jesus was not a white woke westerner and you can't understand him unless you understand him as I normally talk about him, as the world's most influential Jew. He was a brown Middle Eastern man, and God encountered humanity and the cradle of civilization in this fertile crescent. And, and why we now think of Jesus as white and Western is because this Middle Eastern faith has been so incredibly successful at uh, connecting with people of every culture and race and ethnicity. But what we've got to do is keep going back to the sources, to who he really was. Uh, and the other, the final thing we go to this is, uh, what I love about these stories in Genesis is it teaches us that God comes to us embodied in the day-to-dayness of our lives. You see, our faith, Christianity, is not a set of philosophical ideas, though it is that. It's not just that. Christianity contains wonderful ideas, but it's not just that. The Hebrew Scriptures tell us it's a halakha, it's a walk. Faith is a walk. It's a journey. It's a being with God. And that's what you see in the Genesis stories. You see Abraham walking with God, being with God in the day-to-dayness of life. And we need to, and maybe I'm just preaching to me because I, I tend to live very much in my head. I love ideas. But actually what I need to do is live very much in the moment and in the walk with God. And Abraham and Genesis reminds me to do that. And it's a grounded, historic, embodied faith. Okay, so that was by way of um, prolegomena or introduction. I'm going to make three quick points 
um, from this text. One, we're going to think about the nature of Abraham's encounter with God. The second thing we're going to think about, well, what happens as a result of this? And then we're going to spend a bit of time just reflecting on, well, what does this mean uh, about for us and our encounter with God? So the first thing we can say about Abraham's encounter is uh, in this text in Genesis is he recognizes Yahweh. He, and Yahweh is the, the, the name uh, given for God at the time. He recognizes Yahweh. And you say, well, why is that? How is that? Well, it appears in Scripture that God has regularly been walking with human beings. Right? God and the gods. There's a, in Genesis, the vision uh, that is given to us of the world is that there is a, a God above all gods, Yahweh, and Yahweh has created a realm of spiritual beings, some of whom are called angels or messengers and malakoi. Others are called Elohim, gods. Um, and, and Yahweh, the great God above all gods, has created the spiritual realm of beings uh, with whom he then rules reality. And then he created uh, human beings, embodied spiritual beings, you and I, and he put us in this world uh, to, to live in communion and community with the spiritual beings and with himself. And uh, you can listen back to a, a couple of sermon series ago where we unpacked this a little more. But what that means is that human beings, we are made to engage with spiritual beings and when you read Genesis, the early chapters, Genesis 1 and 2 and 3, you see God showing up and walking with Adam and Eve in a recognizable form. And in Genesis 12, it seems that Abraham recognizes Yahweh. And why we know that is the case because, in fact, you know, 1,500 years later, in the book of Acts, uh, Stephen um, who was one of the early disciples, is um, up on charges in front of the, the high priest. Um, and Stephen says this, Brothers and fathers, listen to me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham while he was still in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran. Leave your country and your people, God said, and go to the land I will show you. So you say, wow, what does that mean? Well, this is in fact... Uh, before God showed up in the, in the encounter that we read about here. Just to show you um, that this is an embodied reality, uh, here's a map of um, uh, the Middle East. And uh, this is where, this is the bottom part of what was then Mesopotamia. It's down the bottom end of Iraq. And uh, God appeared to Abraham somewhere here. He was hanging out here with his old man and his family. And then they, they wandered up to Haran, which is kind of up in the sort of... Uh, actually, this is all the Fertile Crescent. So it's kind of up here in the northern part of Syria, the northern part of Iraq. So Haran is somewhere up here. And then God appeared to Abraham and said, hey, dude... Leave everything that you've relied on and go to the country I'll show you. So what did he do there? He then wandered down. He wandered down through Lebanon, hung out on the Mediterranean, enjoyed the beautiful coastline, chilled out a bit, kept going down, uh, went through Beirut, thought this would be a good place for a city one day, uh, got down to Israel, hung out in Israel, 
and then went, ah, oh, look, you know, there's a famine. I'd better keep going. So he went down to Egypt and, uh, and they, he was saved, you know, so went there to rescue, to survive the famine. Then he wandered back. And that's the journey of Abraham, right? And uh, you can go and visit those places today. Um, you know, maybe not Syria in northern Iraq. Um, that could be a little tricky. But, but this is what happened. And he, this, so what we come across now is the second encounter that Abraham has with Yahweh. And he recognizes Yahweh because God shows up in embodied form to be encountered by human beings. And um, that's what happens. And then what happens, which is fascinating, if you read this story, right? Um, the first thing that happens is that God gives him a command. The command comes first. The Lord said to Abraham, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. And I found it interesting that God starts with this command, right? And it's, and it's a big command, right? This is, this is saying to Abraham... Leave, go from your country. So what do you find in a country? Well, the country is the place of your, uh, provides you with security. Like this is where your people live and you are now physically secure from the threats of other tribes. One of the histories of tribal groups in all primates, chimpanzee groups, and homo sapien groups like us is, in our tribal groups, our first response when we meet people from another tribe is what? We see them as a sense of threat and we attack them. This is the history of tribal warfare. So if you were with your people in your country, in your tribe, you were safe. And God says to Abraham, leave your safety. Leave your place of security. He then says, leave your people. Um... We are mostly individualists in our context, right? We don't, our sense of self is not that shaped by our people, by our tribe, by our family, in more traditional cultures. And certainly uh, when, a, when this was written, and for really the intervening 3,000 years, your people shaped who you were. You were it, you, you didn't have an identity aside from your family and your parents. That's, everyone was son of this and son of this and son of this and son of this. And you knew your genealogy going back years and years, you know, generations. Because your people made you who you are. And God says to Abraham, leave your land, which is your security. Leave your people, which is your identity. And leave uh, your father's household. So leave your relationships. Like all these things that matter most to Abraham that constituted his security, his identity, and his close, most intimate relationships, God says, leave. Why? Aren't those good things? It's good to be secure. It's good to have a sense of identity. And like family is good, isn't it? So why does God start with a command that is that costly? I guess you could give a bunch of answers. Here's the answer I came up with. I think God wants to make the point to Abraham and to you and to me that God is God and I am not. God is God and you are not. God is God and Abraham was not. Now, uh, 
Obviously, when you think about me, like you're sitting there looking at me, when I make the point that God is God and I, Mark, am not God, that is not a problematic thing for you to agree with. You go, yeah, particularly if you've been around me a while, you go, Mark, you really are not God. But you know what? I find it hard to acknowledge that I'm not God. And that's not because I'm a narcissist. It's because I'm human. And as a human, I want to be in control ever since Genesis 3. I actually want to be the one who calls the shots. I want to be the one who's in charge of, of my own security, of my identity, of my relationships. And you do that. And I don't say that in a bad way. I think we are made in the image of God. There is a godness, a godlikeness about us. And what happens is we get confused and we think that we're God who calls the shots and the God who made us is there to serve us. And we see this, right? Mostly I run my life until I get into difficulties and then I go, oh God, please help me. Okay, so uh, understandable. What God sets up in this encounter is he says, no, 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 Abraham, let's, let's get the order right. I'm the creator, you're the creature. I'm Yahweh, the God above all gods. You are an amazing, glorious, brilliant, extraordinary being, but you're not God. And he makes it so clear. He says, the things that give you security, the things that make your life valuable and safe and meaningful, you've got to, you've got to leave behind every." that you have relied on, everything that is a human construct, and you've just got to trust me because I'm God, and you're not. If you want to encounter God, it starts with being open to this terrifying proposition that you are not God. That in fact, you're a creature and you're vulnerable and you're fragile. And to encounter God requires uh, a surrender to the givenness of that reality. It requires a surrender to the godness of God. Uh, that's why, by the way, in, any, in the recovery movement, if you've ever been part of uh, Alcoholics Anonymous or Narcotics Anonymous, any of the recovery movements, the, the genius of the recovery movement, because it's so deeply Christian, is that it starts with surrender. And it says, I, I am powerless to save myself, to make myself sober or whatever it is. I'm powerless and I will surrender to a higher power. I'll surrender to God. I need someone outside of me. And that is where it starts with us. And, um, and that's really very important. You see, Jesus says, if we seek God, we will find him. Our problem with that is we don't want to find God because if I find God and I encounter God, I'm faced with the fact that I'm not God. So I don't find God because I don't want to find God. I don't want the uncomfortable truth that I'm not God and that he is. So there's a, there's a deep emotional, moral, existential battle with an encounter with God that goes far beyond just the intellectual. It's a place of surrender, and that's terrifying. I imagine this was not easy for Abraham to leave everything. And, and I don't believe for a moment it's easy to surrender to God today. It's not. 
I mean, I'm professionally religious. I've been at this for a long time. I find it very easy to cling to the things that give me security and identity. My family, my intellect, my success, my, my wonderful suburb and lifestyle and society and, and all these things that, that I cling to and I try and control. And to let that go, hold those with an open hand and say, no, God, you be God. I'm not. That's, that has a measure of terror involved. And I think it did for Abraham and I think it did, does for us. However, lest you all think, geez, Mark, you're doing a really bad job of selling this whole God thing to us. It sounds awful. <laughs> Let me just go grab a coffee right now from another coffee shop. Um, right after this command comes, um, comes a promise. And what God says to Abraham is, I call you to leave the stuff that is your human construct that you control and what I'll do is, you know what? I will give you everything and more that you, than you have left. So um, this is what he says. He says, you know, leave these things and then I'm going to do far more for you than you could possibly do for yourself. I'll make you into a great nation. So leave your country and I'll make you a great nation. And I'll bless you. I will make your name great. You were worried about your sense of identity and having to leave your people, and that was what that, that gave you identity. But I'll make your name great. I'll give you everything and more. And I will, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So don't worry about your father's household. I will make you a father of all the nations. So God says to Abraham, What a promise. What a promise. He'll give him great, make him, give him all the security and power he could be after being a great nation. He'll give him identity and fame. He'll make him, a, a, he'll make him the father of the nations. He'll give him a purpose and a legacy and a destiny. All of that comes from surrendering to God. And we're here as a result of it. God's been faithful to this, right? And you go, that's fantastic. Imagine what an amazing guy Abraham must have been. Like these promises, it wasn't having just been given these promises. You can just imagine that Abraham's life was phenomenally phenomenal after that. I mean, what an amazing example of faith, right? But you know what I love about this story? Is immediately after he's received these promises, what does Abraham do? I don't know if you if you notice this. It's quite hysterical. He goes, he obeys, he goes, okay, I'm gonna head on off. But then what does he do? He gets into trouble. He goes down to Egypt to save his family. And he pimps out his wife to save himself. I mean, she's, you know, she's 75 and she's beautiful. You know, it's Jewish women, what can I say? You know, um, <laughs> at least the Egyptians found her beautiful. And so, and technically she was his sister because she was the daughter of, a, um, uh, of his father. But he, he protects himself by, by pimping her out to uh, Pharaoh. And what happens as a result, instead of Egypt being blessed by Father Abraham coming and bringing God's blessing to him, Egypt is cursed. Egypt is cursed. 
so he, he, he lies about his sister, about his wife. He covers it up. He pimps her out. Um, and verse 13, say you are my sister so that I will be treated well for your sake. And my life will be spared because of you. He actually doesn't really care much about her. Go hang out in, in the Pharaoh's harem so that everything will be okay for me. Isn't that a great example of faith? Like this is a man who's just had an encounter with God. And you go, yes, first opportunity he has. An unbelievably selfish, lying failure. Like what a guy. What a guy. So he comes to the Egyptians. They see she's a very beautiful woman. Uh, they see her, praised her to Pharaoh. She was taken into his palace, stroke harem. He treated Abraham well for her sake. He got a whole lot of sheep and cattle. I mean, he's pimped her out, right? And, uh, and ser- male and female servants, he acquired slaves and camels, the whole, the whole box and dice. But then what happens is God, instead of bringing blessing on Egypt, God inflicts diseases on them. And, uh, and eventually they work out that all the, the, the trouble that they're having is because of Abraham. And he goes, what have you done, you turkey? Um, and so they, they sent him on his way. Basically, they forced him out of the country. Now, what does that mean for us? <laughs> uh, this is the result of the encounter. It's not great. So here's what we learn from this one god is encounterable so god abraham encountered god you and i can encounter god we don't encounter god in in abraham we encounter god in jesus christ okay so let's and we'll unpack that over the weeks to come the second thing is don't trust people (laughs) like don't like even religious people and don't think that having a deep encounter with God necessarily automatically transforms you into a paragon of virtue I mean it should and and you know what over time we are transformed but the reality is people are profoundly disappointing and religious people are profoundly disappointing There is within us, in the human heart, the ability to take what is beautiful and good and amazing and use it for for selfish, ugly, evil, destructive purposes. We do that with all of life. We do that with love, with sex, with money, with art, with power, with politics, and oh my God, we do it with religion. So what do we do with that? Well, I've, and I don't know, but I know I've had so many discussions with people over the years who've said, I find it hard to believe in God because of the way people have behaved. Child sexual abuse in the institutional church, the crusades, Abraham pimping out his wife. Actually, I've never heard anyone say, (laughs) I don't come to God because of Abraham. But they should, because that's a great story of like, what the, you know? I don't know about you, I just find that all, whenever I hear stories of great human evil done by people who are supposedly Christian, I just go, yep, that just shows me how much I need to trust God, not people. It shows me how much I need a savior. I just, I don't know. And maybe it's just me. I, I mean, the guy who led me to Jesus when I was a teenager, also sexually abused me. He groomed the whole youth group, groomed the church, was an awful predator. So my faith was formed in the context of this. Like you just go, that's 
you know what? So, I don't know, like you go, yeah, that is the way of the, this side of heaven. That's what we're like. We have these amazing encounters with God, but we still have the capacity to mess things up. So that's about other people, but also the, the next thing about you is don't despair about yourself. Don't think that maybe if you come to God and then you still are messed up next week, that your encounter with God wasn't valid. It just means it takes time. And God isn't finished with you, and you're still a mess. But welcome, we're in a community of people who are a mess. I've been, I've been having encounters with God profoundly since I was a 15-year-old. I'm now 35, and um, <laughs> 35 years later, I'm still a mess. The, my, my capacity to be selfish in the footsteps of Father Abraham and to be disappointing is, is enormous. But God is still God. So don't trust people in that ultimate sense. Trust God. Because God is the only one in the end, the only human being who's ever kept all his promises, who's utterly reliable. And, and he kept his promises to the point where he would actually die for us in Jesus Christ. So we'll explore that over the next few weeks. Um, and I, I hope that's been in some way helpful. I find it so, I don't know, trust God. That's like, he keeps his promises. Uh, I mean, Abraham's, like, three and a half thousand years later, here am I, a Jewish person, talking to you about another Jew so that you can encounter the God of Abraham. Like, that is the promise of, that is Genesis 12 fulfilled. It's nothing short of miraculous that you are here listening to a Jew talk to you about another Jew. Here in Roselle. In the 20, like, it's weird, right? That's because God is at work in the world, I, I do believe. Uh, so let's um, continue to follow him and encounter him and be open to that. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you that you love us. And, uh, and even through this story, you tell us how we can encounter you. And I pray that we will. I pray that you'll work in our lives and you'll draw us to yourself. And, uh, yeah, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to ask the band to come on down. We're going to wrap up by singing one last song. Uh, this, uh, this, I believe, this is the uh, summary uh, sort of, uh, of the Apostles' Creed put to music. So let's uh, stand and worship our God together. Here come our two worship leaders, Neve and Penny. Let's give it up for Neve. Yes. All right.